0: Today's Bible reading is from Exodus chapter 7 verses 8 to 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers. And the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Thanks, Charlotte. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name's Jack, if I haven't met you before. We're in our fourth week uh, looking at the book of Exodus. Uh, The first week, we were reminded um, that God is a God who does not forget His promises. Um, The second week, we were reminded that God is a God that that reaches out, He reaches down to rescue His people. Uh, Last week, we heard uh, how Yahweh, our great God, uh, will make Himself known. Uh, And this morning, we're looking at at how God has no equal. We're looking at the God who has no equal. Um, the, The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz, who's seen it? Hand up in the air. Yep, lots of us have seen The Wizard of Oz. It's an absolute classic, right? The tale of a Kansas farm girl called Dorothy being swept away with her dog Toto in a cyclone to the magical land of Oz. But you didn't think when you woke up we were going to be talking about The Wizard of Oz. Maybe like the Matilda's Game or something. You thought that illustration was coming. You know, opposing forces. We'll get to that later. Don't worry. Um, but Dorothy gets blown away in a cyclone to the, to the magical land of Oz. She, she picks up some friends on her way to the Emerald City... Where she meets the mighty and powerful Wizard of Oz. See, Dorothy, she just she just wants to get home. And the wizard there tells her that the only way to get home uh, is for someone to be defeated. Can anyone remember to shout out who needs to be defeated? the, The wicked witch of the West needs to be defeated. Right. After after much adventuring and traveling, including fighting off a pack of wolves, being carried off by a flock of flying monkeys, and melting a witch with water, who knew? Dorothy and her friends return to the Wizard of Oz victorious. And there's this scene uh, when Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Lion, and the Scarecrow, they're all standing before flames and smoke and lights. And the Wizard of Oz uh, floats before them in all his might and power. His voice proclaims loudly who he is. It questions their boldness in approaching him. I mean, who do they think they are? He's the Wizard of Oz. But then Toto, like little, little Toto... A small dog walks over to a curtain and pulls. And when Toto pulls, the facade falls away. The Wizard of Oz isn't a powerful being who they should fear. He's an elderly man standing behind a curtain, tricking people into thinking he's something he's not. Actually, he's lost, just like Dorothy, revealed for who he really is, uh, nothing more than a man. Uh, Well, let me introduce you to Pharaoh. This is our fourth week looking at the book of Exodus, as I said. And there's there's been this tension building in the story, hasn't there? God's people are in slavery. Pharaoh won't let them go, but keeps making life harder for them. And we know that God isn't going to stay silent. And there's this tension that just kind of builds and builds. Pharaoh versus God. That is where we are this morning, that is what we see in these verses. And that is what we see in the plagues to follow as well in chapters uh, 7 through to 11. We're seeing Pharaoh versus God, but seeing the showdown of this century. Uh, but it isn't really, is it? It isn't really. You see, Pharaoh and, and all the power of Egypt, well, we might as well call them the Wizard of Oz. See, when we look behind the curtain at Pharaoh and at Egypt, we see them for what they really are. And the line to remember this morning is a really simple one. God has no equal, God has no equal and this truth changes absolutely everything. If you've got a leaflet in front of you, you'll see that point one says an inevitable outcome. Uh, Who who did watch the Matildas versus England in the World Cup on Wednesday night? Yeah, quite a lot of us, right? It looked like the Matildas might be in with a chance to win toward the, the, the end of the second half, right? It was quite exciting, Sam Kerr got that goal, it was really exciting, uh, but, but they didn't quite get there. England triumphed. And just, I have a really quick question. How many pastors around Australia do you think are using the Matildas in a sermon illustration? <laughs> it's probably, there's probably a few, but we, we love watching a good showdown, don't we? I mean, the Matildas versus Sweden last night as well, battling it out for bronze. We tune in and we watch, wondering what will happen, excited, hoping for a close game, hoping for a win for the Aussies. Well, in Exodus, the tension has been building, Pharaoh versus God, two opposing forces. But when we get to it, uh, we see what we can only really describe as the most anticlimactic showdown in the history of the world. But while on the one hand, we have the most anticlimactic showdown ever, uh, on the other hand, we actually see the most frightening and awe-inspiring display of power that we could imagine, don't we? As God reveals more of who He is. It's a unique one, isn't it? Because in this battle, what we see are two contrasting images. We see the weakness and false or counterfeit power of man. But on the other side, we see the very real and, and very terrifying power and might of a holy God who creation bows down to and obeys. And by the end of the account of the plagues in Exodus chapter 7 to 11, that God sends against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians. There's just no question about who God is. He's the victor. He's, he's the real king. He is the God with no equal. And Pharaoh is the Wizard of Oz, a man behind a curtain, fooling nobody. And in Exodus chapter 7, verse 8 to 13, the passage that Charlotte read out this morning, what we see is that God is showing Pharaoh and us that the outcome was inevitable from the beginning. See, God has no equal. Pharaoh and Egypt never stood a chance. We're going to read it together from the start. The Lord has just told Moses and Aaron in the preceding verses to go before Pharaoh. And then in verse 8 we read, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Now, there are a few things to notice in these verses. Uh, Firstly, it's the interaction between Moses, Aaron, and God, and then then the interaction between Pharaoh and his wise men, sorcerers, and those uh, Egyptian magicians. And one of the questions that's usually raised from this text is, is how did the wise men and those sorcerers, how did they change their staffs into snakes? Did they do it by real magic? Was it by tricking Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron? Was it by finding snakes that were sleeping and looked like sticks and then throwing them onto the ground so they wake up? Uh, there, are, there are questions there. But the way the story unfolds shows us that this isn't at all supposed to be the focus for us. So we're going to park that. See, instead, what our attention is meant to be on in these verses is God and Pharaoh. See, both make a command. Both seem to get the same result. But we need to peer behind the curtain to see what's actually happening. See, what we see here is that on one side, there there is God hiding behind no one. See, The staff in Aaron's hand that gets thrown onto the ground actually has nothing to do with Aaron. Aaron is just obeying God and doing what he said putting a stick on the ground but when Aaron throws the staff on the ground God turns it into a snake. Pharaoh on the other hand that the wizard of odds behind the curtain he can't do that instead he hides behind the wise men sorcerers and magicians who turn their staffs into snakes by their secret arts whatever that looks like. It's a small but very telling detail in the story. See Pharaoh's power is being revealed as counterfeit as a fake power in the contest between Pharaoh and God, God uh, Pharaoh can't do what God has done. The God's power is different, it's real. We peer behind the curtain at Pharaoh and we start to wonder, is, is he really any match for God? Uh, but something else happens in these verses, doesn't it? In verse 12, as we read of the wise men, sorcerers and Egypt, Egyptian magicians, we read, "...each one threw down his staff." And it became a snake. And you can kind of imagine Pharaoh gloating at this point. Like, see what I can do with all my power. Even though he's done absolutely nothing. But then we read this. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. The snake God made out of nothing more than a piece of wood. Swallows up all of the other snakes that have appeared. Like they're nothing. See, there is more than meets the eye here. With Aaron's staff and with the other staffs. It's not just a a case of one snake swallowing multiple other snakes and moving on. See what's really going on here is that God is showing Pharaoh and is showing those reading these verses that the outcome is inevitable. There isn't meant to be a question of whether Pharaoh will hold his own in this contest of power. God won before the first plague was sent against Egypt. Now a couple of weeks ago we spoke about how the snake was the image of power and might in Egypt. The snake represented uh, the gods of Egypt and, and was worn as a symbol by Pharaoh who fancied himself some sort of divine being because of all the power that he had. But the Lord, the great I Am of the Bible, Pharaoh was just no match for him. He alone is, is the one true God. And in this first encounter, God sets out the inevitable outcome of this showdown. From Exodus 7 14 to chapter 11, verse 10, we read of 10 plagues. Uh, nine plagues that God sends against Pharaoh in these chapters that we read about, and a tenth that extends through to chapter 12. And we'll be coming to that in a couple of weeks. We'll dig a bit more into it as we look at the Passover. Uh, but in the verses we have read out today, we see uh, point two in your outlines the God with true power being displayed. Uh, now, there isn't, there isn't time to be able to go through all of the verses in chapters 7 to 11. This morning would be here for for quite a long time. But I think most of us have an understanding of this story and and of how it goes. Pharaoh has a heart that is hardened against God. He doesn't want to listen to God. He doesn't want to let God's people go. So God instructs Moses and Aaron to tell Pharaoh about how God is going to respond. God will send plagues in his judgment. You'll see behind me there should be a table, uh, or not really a table, just a kind of list of the plagues. Um, Hopefully they'll pop up. See, firstly, God, God turns the water of the Nile into blood. And then he sends a plague of frogs. They're absolutely everywhere. They're in every bedroom in ovens and kneading troughs as well. Can you imagine the taste of frog? would just be there for days. God turns the dust of the land, all the dust of the land, we read in Exodus 8, 16, into gnats or into lice. And the magicians of Pharaoh, they keep, they're trying to keep up with God in all of this. They try to match this. But they can't do anything. Who can turn dust into a living thing? Only God. The magicians, they start to fade out of the story at this point. Completely useless to Pharaoh. Pharaoh no longer has anyone to hide behind. But still he doesn't listen to God. Still he has a hard heart. So God sends a plague of flies, a swarm of flies in every house of Egypt. Even the ground, all the ground in chapter 8 verse 22 is covered with flies. But not God's people. The Israelites remain untouched by God's judgment. But Pharaoh still doesn't listen but hardens his heart. So God says he will send a terrible plague on all the Egyptian livestock in chapter 9 verse 3. They will all die if Pharaoh doesn't listen. And surprise, surprise, Pharaoh doesn't listen. And all the livestock of the Egyptians die. But not a single one of the Israelites' livestock. Yet Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He doesn't listen. So God sends a plague of boils over Egypt. They break out on people and animals everywhere. God sends hail and it wipes out the crops and fields of the Egyptians. But it doesn't touch the Israelites. Still Pharaoh doesn't listen. He sins against God. So God sends locusts in chapter 10. They devour the little the Egyptians have left. Every tree is taken. And Pharaoh's own officials, they begin telling him, Let the Israelites go. But still Pharaoh refuses. His heart is hard. So God sends darkness. We read in chapter 10 verse 22, total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days except for the Israelites. Pharaoh, he still doesn't listen. And we are left in chapter 11 verse 10 with the promise of a final plague if Pharaoh doesn't let God's people go. God will bring death to the Egyptians. The firstborn will be taken from them. And we are left going, Pharaoh, isn't it obvious? Isn't it time to concede? Pharaoh, you are no match. God has no equal. Let his people go. And in two weeks' time, we will read that Pharaoh yet again denies God. There is so much that we could take from these verses, from the plagues and and what is happening. And in a couple of weeks, we will spend considerable time in the last plague. But the thing that I'd love to stand out for all of us is this. Pharaoh is no match for the God with true power. God uses something to display His power that only God can use. Who can command dust to come to life? Who can send hail and take it away with a word? Who can change the properties of water so it becomes blood who can command the sun itself well, the one who created it the one who creation bows down to and obeys no one else we kind of ask the question why not just do something like god did with sodom and gomorrah maybe why not send some angels with some swords why not send an invading army to take them out like happens later in the bible why not just wipe egypt out with a word why all the plagues and all of this back and forth with Pharaoh? Well, we read why multiple times in Exodus. We read it this morning with Carl. It's so that they will know. In chapter 7, verse 5, we read, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. We read it in chapter 7, verse 17. By this you will know that I am the Lord. <clears throat> we read it in chapter 8 this morning with Carl. And we read it in chapter 9, verse 16. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, God says to Pharaoh, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, God is revealing who he is, the God with no equal, the God who will be known. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 8 to 13 that we read out today, we see that the outcome is inevitable. Pharaoh is the the Wizard of Oz hiding behind fake power, And God has no equal. He's the God of creation. But how does this God intend to use his power? It's not as a chaotic and manipulative and vindictive God. That's not what he does. God uses his power to rescue his people. That's how he uses his power. Point three on your outlines the God with power to save. In Exodus chapter 7-12, to throughout all the plagues, God is displaying His great power in judgment over Pharaoh and over Egypt. And as we've already seen, He does it using something that only God can use. It's creation. There's no doubt that God has no equal. But another thing we see through the plagues and in the way that God responds to Pharaoh is that God's judgment works out in the salvation of His people. God's judgment works out in the salvation of His people. It's something that gets pointed back to again and again in the Old Testament as part of their identity. See, the Israelites are a rescued people. We see this in the plagues in Exodus as God uses creation to enact his judgment on Pharaoh, that it might lead to the salvation of God's people from slavery. But we see it mostly in chapter 14, which we'll get to later on, when God parts the Red Sea so that the Israelites can escape the Egyptians once and for all. Pharaoh and the Egyptians in one final act of rebellion and defiance against God set out in pursuit of the Israelites who they have just said can leave Egypt but God parts the Red Sea ahead of the Israelites and they are saved as they go through but when they try to follow the seeds close over the Egyptians and they are defeated God's final act of judgment that works out in the salvation of his people. And there is much to say about this theme throughout the Old Testament. There are a lot of places we could go as we look at God's judgment working out in salvation of his people. But there is one place, isn't there, that when we look there, we see the greatest example of this. When we look to the New Testament, when we meet Jesus, we meet someone with the same power over creation as God has in Exodus. We read that Jesus' first miracle involved turning water into wine in John's Gospel, not just a party trick but a hint at something greater. Jesus walks on water. Jesus calms a storm with a word. The great I am walking on earth, clothed in flesh. God himself, with creation at his disposal, to do with as he wishes. In Matthew and Luke, gospel accounts of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. We read that darkness comes over the earth. We read that the earth shakes. We read that rocks split in two. Creation moves. But it doesn't move as Jesus stands there acting against God's enemies in judgment and moving creation at his will. No, it moves as God's judgment is poured out over Jesus, nailed on a cross. And why? For the ultimate salvation of God's people. For us, for for you and I. For those who deserve what Jesus got, but who Jesus, out of his great love for us, took upon his own shoulders. The judgment of God on on Jesus working out in salvation for those who turn to him. The God of Exodus who commands creation to enact his will, who has no equal, chooses death so that we might have life. Defeats sin and death once and for all so that we might never be taken away from him and brought back into slavery. The God who has no equal chooses to love his enemies, chooses to love us, In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we read, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. The God who has no equal acts towards us in this way. So how do do we respond to the God who has no equal? To the God who chooses to act towards sinful people in such a way that His judgment works out for our salvation and not for our doom. Point four on your leaflets hard heart or soft heart, with no in-between. There are really two responses that we can have to God, aren't there? And we read the first response in Pharaoh. It's the consistent response of Pharaoh's throughout all of those plagues. In verse 13 this morning we read, Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. The Pharaoh, being confronted with the truth of who God is and his place before God, refuses to listen. His heart becomes hardened against God, and he refuses to obey God, refuses to let his people go, and as a result faces God's judgment and wrath. Has a hard heart, refuses to listen. And if refusing to listen results in disobedience to the call of God and reflects a hardened heart, well then listening well it results in responding, doesn't it, to the call of God reflects a soft heart, the kind of heart that God desires. Jesus, as He came, announcing that God's kingdom was near and that it was possible to enter into this kingdom, enter into a relationship with God, desired those who heard Him to respond to the God who has no equal. And it wasn't by trying to prove that they were worthy. It's not by us trying to prove that we are worthy. It wasn't by trying to convince God that they could make... Things right between them and god by obeying him finally because that, that never works it doesn't work out that way today either the response jesus called for was repentance or turning away from sin and rejection of god to belief trusting in jesus as the one who can deal with our sin and the one to follow back to relationship with god out from slavery to sin and death and into life repent and believe This is the response that Jesus calls for from us all. It's the response of a soft heart. If you're here and worried that you have a hard heart, but you want to know Jesus, if you have put your trust in Jesus, that's an indicator that you have a a softening heart or you have a soft heart. God has gone to work in you. So keep responding by listening to him. But if you, you haven't responded to him that way yet, you can do so right now in your heart by saying sorry to god for your hard heart saying sorry for your sin and putting your trust in jesus as the only one who can save you from the consequences of it you can do that right now god has no equal He's the best thing there is and he wants you with him doesn't want you in slavery to sin and death an object of his judgment god has no equal As a a church, as Christians, those who follow Jesus, how how does the fact that God has no equal impact our day-to-day life? How do we think about how we should keep responding to the God who has no equal? Because I think it's pretty easy to fall into the trap of thinking there are things in this world that are equal to God, that, that are deserving of our obedience and our worship, things we listen to more than God. We're not in slavery to someone like pharaoh we're not in that kind of situation we're certainly not in in a position like pharaoh but we do fall into the trap of attributing characteristics that should only belong to god to the things this this world uh, has that can benefit us i'm going to say that again because that was a bit of a mouthful we do fall into the trap of attributing characteristics that should only belong to god to the things in this world that can benefit us think about career Think about relationships or money, material possessions and comfort. Those idols that that we know exist for us here in Adelaide, that vie for our attention and that we give our time and energy to because we think they're better than God. That's what we do when we do that. When we live our lives for those things, we're saying to God, uh, you actually have an equal. Yes, you use money as an example. It could provide some comfort or security or, or attract people to you so that they like you more. And it feels really good. So you pour your time and energy into getting more of it. You start listening for ways to get more of it. Your evenings are full of checking the stock exchange, of moving money around in different accounts, of trying to figure out how to fudge your next tax return, to thinking about how you can get as much money as possible out of your next customer at work. You ignore when God says that people are more important than wealth. Your heart begins to harden. We look at all the stuff that money can get us, And we see this powerful and awesome sight we see the wizard floating in the room above us with flames and smoke and lights dazzling our eyes and a voice calling out for more attention for more time for more energy and you give in and keep listening ignoring the god who has no equal bringing him down and putting money up in his place you need to peer behind the curtain at what money really is it's nothing more than something god created it can't bring you eternal life. It can't deal with death. It's just a thing, a good thing that God created, but it's just a thing. The Israelites were told that after they were rescued from slavery, they were to to remember God's rescue. It was something they were to pass down to their children and their children's children. Every generation, it was something that was to be etched into the very fabric of their community and their life, remembering God's great rescue and remembering who God has revealed himself to be, the God with no equal, the God who saves. This is what we need to do for each other as well, turning each other's attention to the God who has no equal at every single chance we get, doing it for the children here at church, but also doing it in the home. As well as on a Sunday. Doing it with the open Bible being seen on the table, more than the TV remote and Netflix or the stock exchange or sport. Meeting together during the week and reminding each other of the power of our God, the God who saves, the power of the God who makes himself known to us in his word, of delighting in him together and in all the blessings he has given us in his Son Jesus. I'd like to encourage you over the next couple of weeks, keep reading through the story of the plagues, because there's a lot. We haven't been able to cover this morning, but we'll be returning to it in a couple of weeks' time. But one of the things that comes up again and again in the story of the plagues that I'd like to just highlight and remind you of is that where we see God's terrifying power and judgment displayed against the Egyptians and against Pharaoh, as quickly as that judgment comes, God is quick to show mercy. It's interesting, isn't it, whenever Pharaoh asks Moses to go before God and ask God to relent... God is quick to show mercy and withhold his judgment. He relents and withholds his wrath. And it's important for us to see this side of God's character. The side of God's character that seeks to withhold his judgment from people to be dealt with another way. Because one of the things we often attribute the wrong power to that we shouldn't is guilt. We let it fester in our hearts and we let it drive us away from God. We let it keep us from coming to him when he calls to us. Guilt stops us from listening to God. It plugs up our ears because we listen instead to the accusation of our sin that says we are unworthy, that says God doesn't love us and can't love us and we better find another way to make him happy or we're doomed. Guilt does that to us. It can look like the biggest, scariest, most powerful thing in the room and it can drive us away from God and away from community with our brothers and sisters, and away from what guilt should really lead us to. Peering behind the curtain to see what it is, to see what's unveiled there, and finding grace. Grace that has dealt with shame, has dealt with guilt, has dealt with sin. The grace of God shown to us in His Son, who doesn't push us away in our guilt, but pulls us toward Him so that He can keep showing us grace. The God who has no equal is the God who loves you. The God who delivers you. This is the God that we can know. Lead us now in talking to him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God who has no equal. We praise you as the God of all creation. The God who sustains every living thing. We praise you as the God who is not distant to us the God who in response to our rebellion, in response to our rejection of you, chose not to turn your back on us, but to send your son into this world to deal with the problem we had caused. By dying on the cross for our sins that we might be forgiven. We praise you for this, Lord. We pray that you would help us to remember and know that nothing in this world comes close to you, that you have no equal, that you alone are worthy of all glory, honor and power and praise. Please help us To stand side by side, always pointing towards this great reality. That you are the God who has no equal. You are the God who saves. You are the God who we can know. Amen.